For July 15th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 263, Kaiju Job Creators. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm your host today, Pete Fenzel, uh, rather has unfortunately been lost to the Sharknado. This <laughs> week, consumed Los Angeles, California with a, a water spout, a maelstrom, and an aerial charybdis of uh, ichthyal doom has uh, consumed our own Matt Rather. He fought valiantly using his uh, paleo diet skills and his nunchucks to fight the flying sharks. But it was to no avail, as he has been lost to us. We shall see whether his death was a comic book death and he was cloned, and he'll come back next week. But <laughs> in the meantime, this also means that our whole Sharknado podcast has to be canceled because he was collecting <laughs> data for us on the Sharknado. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but like I was really looking forward to that. So we're just going to have to settle... For Pacific Rim. And shake commence. All right, everyone locked in and loaded. Everyone ready to go? Atomic battery power, turbines to speed. All right, this is really what we're here for. Today, we cancel the not doing the podcast. And we. Your question, panel, for Pacific Rim Cast 2013 is. What geographical feature would you name your action movie after, and what kind of action movie would it be? Going in alphabetical order, not starting with me because I have the privilege of rank, Mark Lee, return from your long absence to lead your robot into battle once again. By which I mean your desktop or your laptop. What kind of robot are you piloting today, Mark? Oh, uh, I've been in Europe for uh, you know the last three weeks or so, so it's a Vespa laptop. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a feat and a feminine, <laughs> but it's really great for the city. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, I'm back uh, after a very long absence. It's great to be back in the uh, in the pilot seat or the co 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 pilot seat of this Jaeger giant Jaeger that we are piloting. That is the overthinking of podcasts. Um, so in my action movie, um, giant. Uh, lacrosse playing robots battle each other for the future of mankind and the movie is called Long Island Sound. For those of you who aren't familiar with the great sport of lacrosse, um, <laughs> it, it, is very, it is very popular in the two states that, uh, that border Long Island Sound, that being New York and Connecticut. They love lacrosse there. Is there like a entrance from Maryland in the middle of that? Oh, you know, yes, yeah, another place where Maryland is, is uh, where, where lacrosse is popular, and there, unfortunately, there's not a body of water that connects all three of those, except for the Atlantic Ocean, which uh, you know, you, there could be Atlantic Rim, but Asylum, the uh, the Mockbuster Studio, already has that covered, so that's already taken. <laughs> and, it's not, and that movie, as far as I know, is not about lacrosse. <laughs> well, I can sense from my neural handshake that Stokes had something to say about Long Island sound. No, I was just curious, like, what is the actual Long Island sound? You know, like, what is the sound that Long Island makes? Oh, of, of, you mean two lacrosse sticks hitting each other? Yeah, there you go. There, yeah, that. 
So are they fighting underwater? They're like playing lacrosse underwater. Is it against a bunch of dolphins and they have to communicate by hitting their lacrosse sticks against each other? Is it like Star Trek Four? Yeah, yes to all of the above. All right, <laughs> Thanks for filling in all those gaps of my idea, Pete. From here on out, it writes itself, so we don't need to bother with it. Next up, <laughs> next up John Parrish is with us tonight. What up, what up? Excuse me, I should put on my, my fake Australian accent. What up, what up, what up? Oi. <laughs> oh, man. Better than so, your fake American accent, John. No one here <laughs> on the podcast knows that you're British except for us. Hello. Welcome to America Place. I am from the States. No, okay. <laughs> so, all right. So my, my action movie is a battle between uh, some giant snowboarding robots in, uh, in Colorado and the alien invaders who seek to shred on their on their wicked turf, and the name of the movie is Rocky Mountain High. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> nice, very nice, very nice. Uh, Colorado. I feel like someone had to answer with that, right? Is yeah. is, is like Robot John Denver brought back um, for? The Rocky Mountain High, probably not. Uh, J- John Denver is the is the first pilot of the program, so his his photo is shown like in, in memorial frames at various places around the the very beat up hangar. So that would add some much needed hearts to the movie. I feel like. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, can, can one of the Jaegers in that movie be called uh, the Silver Bullet? Uh, absolutely. As in Cap the Rocky is Coors Light, the Silver Bullet. Yeah. Oh man! So okay, we have a, another. We have a four-man panel, even without Rather tonight. Jordan Stokes also is here. This is a really special occasion. Not not only do we have four people without Rather, but we've all seen the movie <laughs> that we're going to talk about, which is like super rare situation. Uh, Jordan, what is your geographical movie? Hey, it's great to be here doing the synchronized Running Man with you, as we do with all of our podcasts. <laughs> um, my movie is called Bikini Atoll. <laughs> pretty clearly just the porn parody of Pacific Rim. <laughs> and, and as I learned when I, when I went to Wikipedia to learn how one says the word atoll, because I had no idea, I've never read it, um, bikini actually means land of the coconuts in Marshallese. <laughs> huh. Very nice, very nice. So it is, so it is fitting that the coconuts are on full display. Oh. Right, right. See, when I'm on the podcast, you learn something. <laughs> well, that's what we've missed this whole time. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Oh, man. <laughs> and I guess I'll, uh, I'll close it out by saying that mine's going to be called Pox Strait, after the strait uh, between the, the narrow province of you – know, the Monar – what is it? The Nadu state of India, the Tamil Nadu state of India, and uh, the northern provinces of Sri Lanka, which is a robot movie where the robots bury themselves underground for 30 years and, and wait out and play like brutal attrition, uh, invisible to large institutional authorities, whereas a large number of uh, administrative and ministerial robots from a variety of other places desperately try to coordinate on some sort of strategy. And over the course of decades, they eventually figure out a sort of tenable political solution to the robot impasse. Um, <laughs> but some of them would be tigers, so that would be exciting. <laughs> <laughs> As always, I was thinking that through all Pacific Rim, how like it was really, it was really interesting that India was totally absent, and it's like, well, yeah, that's because India wouldn't build one giant robot. They would each each individual magistrate would have like their own robot, and they would have like thousands of robots that would constantly be like ter- defending their own individual robot turf and arguing with each other over it. Um, but that's neither here nor there. We are not here to discuss the Indian Rim, but the Pacific Rim, the mecca offering uh, of this summer's movie spectacular. And I think the first really solid mecca summer blockbuster that I can think of really in the genre. Is there, is there one I'm missing here? 
Well, first of all, we should ask answer the question, is Transformers a mecha movie? Well, and if so, is it a solid mecha movie? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I would argue that when my, I have a limited knowledge of mechas, but I think there's a distinct difference between Transformers that are sort of, you know, alien beings in, unto themselves, as opposed to a mecha, which is a machine that is piloted, is uh, operated by humans, right? Yeah, definitely. I think taxonomically, the Transformers themselves are not mecha, very obviously, right? Because they don't have people inside of them. Uh, but at the same time, there's the question of, well, I mean, you know, Evangelion, they aren't technically robots, right? Evangelion, uh, which is the sort spoiler of... Spoiler alert, I uh, think. Sorry. Is that a spoiler? Ah, yeah. uh, jeez. <laughs> well, they look like cybernetic, sort of, right? Like, there's yeah. biological elements. That much isn't too much of a spoiler. That it's not. They're not like big metal steel things. And it's one of the biggest in the genre, right? Um, one of the definitive properties in the genre. But it still has all the characteristics of, of all the other mecha stuff. And so it, uh, it fits in. But Transformers still doesn't, right? It still doesn't feel like a mecha. I mean, have, what, have, have you guys watched? I mean, what? We got, we got like, what, Gundam. Voltron and Power Rangers would count as mecha, right? Yeah. I feel like, for me, always the, the defining quality of Mecha is that the robots combine into a larger robot, uh, but I, I don't think that that's really canonical. That's just sort of how it works for me. Yeah. Those are the, is that like your favorite element of Mecha? That's the part that really gets you going? Yeah, yeah. Well, and because, and this gets into, there are sort of obligatory stupid plot points of Mecha movies which you can't even complain about them because it's genre defining, right? It's like it's like going to a western and being like, I did not care for those hats. Yeah. But, <laughs> but in every mecha movie, there's only like two or three moves that work, right? Right, right, right. Um, and they always save those for the end of the fight. It's it's sort of like, um, I mean. I don't know. It's like going to a boxing match where, like, right at the end, somebody's like, and now for the punch to the face. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but with the combining robots, it's always so much more. It, it, like, it, 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 it spike equilibriums that so much because you know for a fact, right, that you're going to have to combine your robots. Like, I don't know. There's probably <laughs> some reason you don't want to do it. Like, it uses more gasoline, right? right and right. you're like your budget director is saying, like, if you could try not to combine the robots this week. But you're going to have to combine the robots. And it just <laughs> seems like it would be easier to do it right at the start. Oh, by the way, for those who aren't familiar, the spike equilibrium is a, is a term we came up with many years ago that's been on the podcast a bunch of times. I believe it refers to in the game of chicken, right, where you're trying to see who swerves first when two cars are racing towards each other. Uh, a suggestion someone in a game theory class that I was in uh, once made, which was to put a spike on the front of your car. <laughs> now, if you know the game of chicken, uh, this, the idea is that this does not actually improve the odds of you winning the game of chicken, but it does make it more awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Any move that doesn't affect the outcome but makes it more awesome is uh, approaching the spike equilibrium. <laughs> and also, it also doesn't change anybody's optimal play, right, of the game. It's exactly. sort of like, you know, play, play chess, but all of the pieces are on fire. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or like, you know, if you play kickball, but the ball is uh, going to explode in like 45 minutes. Although I guess that would change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would change the nature of play. That would make it a little more conservative at certain points. Very, very liberal at other points. Right, right. Well, I think that it changes your your sort of optimal strategy from play kickball to don't play kickball. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so I guess okay. So blanket spoiler alert for all of Pacific Rim, and probably for some of some other mecha franchises. But we'll try not to say too much. Um, it's uh, I mean I guess we kind of have to say a little bit of spoiler stuff about Neon Genesis Evangelion because you can't really talk about what that show's about without spoiling it a little bit. And we got it because it pulls the movie pulls so heavily from it at different times. And of course we wish Shane Malowski were on this uh, call with us. She's overthinking its uh, native. Uh, resident uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion expert, but we will make do without her. But spoiler for Specific Rim, and I guess now that we've addressed the question of uh, why play kickball or not play kickball, I suppose <laughs> we should address one of the most pressing issues in Specific Rim, which is why to use the giant robots in the first place <laughs> instead of other methods of combating these monsters. Uh, what's the point of the giant robots? Uh, do you guys have any ideas? I mean, like, I don't know. I, I'm going to sound a little bit incredulous because I know a lot of people raved about Pacific Rim, but like I kind of found it really difficult to get through and kind of tedious. Um, but I'll try to contain that as we talk about the, 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 the awesome things and the good things and the relevant things rather than just complaining. But yeah, but what do you guys think? What did you guys think about the robots? What, did they, what purpose did they serve? What did they symbolize or represent? I mean, it's one thing that's interesting about it is that um – it, it, it turns it into a, a combat of champions, right? Not just in Pacific Rim, but in, in any giant robot movie. It turns war into a one-on-one struggle, which is satisfying for all kinds of narrative reasons, but rarely makes any kind of sense if you're thinking about things strategically because, you know, historically that's not how war works, right? If you have one side that will try that and one side that will not, the side that will not is going to win. Uh, the, the strategy of, like, bombing the things from F-14s, I, I saw no reason why that should not be effective 100% of the time. You yeah, know? Exactly. Because the things are the size of buildings, and, like, we have the missile technology to hit buildings at this point. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure Napoleon would have, like, been able to take these things out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it, I do find that this is what I was talking about that like we know for a fact from the movie that nuclear weapons will work on the things it's not like Independence yep. Day where it's just like that doesn't work for some reason that we yeah. made up um, we know for a fact that it will so why they don't just nuke one every time it comes out of the water okay. like, and we, all, we also know exactly where they'll emerge from every single time right mm-hmm. yeah in fact, to, to that point, how do they get as far as, like, San Francisco or, you know, uh, uh, Vladivostok or any of the other places that they get hit? Like, after a while, isn't, isn't there pretty much always eyes on the, on the breach and someone's able to say, like, oh, this thing's trending, you know, northwest-ish. Let's evacuate yeah, Siberia. I mean, more or less, I thought that that's how I read it in the movie. Right, it's sort of like all earlier on, did, where the kaiju attacks, you know, go to places as far away as like San Francisco. But uh, as the events in the movie progress, the attacks are in places like you know Sydney, Hong Kong, sort of closer to you know more sort of on the on the eastern side of no, on the Asia side of the Pacific Ocean as opposed to the uh, as opposed to the American side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, and 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 that gets back into like what the. Um, the robots are doing there, right? Is that each one is the the champion of a nation or the champion of a people. So although it's supposed to be this one world government, it's a very, very factionalized one. And each one has their like kind of totem animal in the form of one of these, uh, these giant robots, uh, which is going to go and do battle sort of for the worldview of that, uh, of that nation. Uh, We need to talk about the presence or the absence of government 
uh, in the second half of the of the movie. Mm-hmm. But like to sort of tease out for a moment, like uh, the the different strategies for battling kaiju, whether they involve giant robots, nuclear weapons, or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, just, we missed something uh, important about the fact that like there's a fissure in the earth, and that's where they always. <laughs> Always, 100% without fail, come from, right? Because what do you do then? Don't you just, like, station some nuclear uh, bombs, like, right by the fissure? So, like, when you see um, when you see the things going off, like, oh, there comes another one. Time to hit the button. Yeah, because apparently there, there used to be a, a, mar- a period of time where there was a margin of, like, weeks between, between you know, eruptions or incursions or whatever. So sure. you, can, you can build, like, a sort of, you know, like, floating... You know, floating metal superstructure above it, and just position a you know position a nuclear warhead like right over it, like a you know like a fishing lure. And as soon as it goes off, just <laughs> sure. Okay, let's, let's say for the sake of the argument that like sending off that many nuclear uh, weapons in the ocean is going to you know have too much uh, environmental impact, or maybe in this version of the future, uh, you know, there's been nuclear disarmaments. So there's not a lot of nuclear weapons going to save them for oh, I don't know. Uh, nuking the hell out of human beings as opposed to aliens. Um, just like the, the, the conventional aspect of attacking, uh, of attacking kaiju, you see, like, you know, uh, fighter jets are shooting uh, their cannons and their missiles at the kaiju, right? It's like, why do you do that at short range? You know, if you think about how uh, air combat actually works, right? Bombers launch missiles at um, targets. You know, they can be moving at some you know, considerable velocity. They can launch the missiles from many, many, many miles away from a very safe distance with a high degree of accuracy. That's what should be happening. Well, you know what other uh, movie spectacular had the resources to fight one of these things would be Battleship, right? Because a Battleship <laughs> would actually be pretty good. You just get a Battleship out there with a bunch of really heavy-duty cannons and you just blow the heck out of the thing as soon as it comes up out of the water. Like, yeah. I feel like the USS, this is what like things like the USS Missouri were built to do, right? Is like take out yeah. giant lumbering yes. well, I mean, the, precise the, purpose. <laughs> yeah, but of course the answer to that is, you know, we, and you know, that, that actually has issues of plausibility too because, you know, the era of battleships is long, long over. Like they, like most battleship, I think almost all battleships have been decommissioned just because the, the era of, you know, Getting two slow-moving boats to park next to each other and fling mortar shells at each other until one sinks, uh, and ended before World War II, or you know, just just during. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a bridge though. I think. Uh, I mean, the, the cultural bridge for me would probably be space battleship Yamoto, Yamoto right? Which okay. is like the, the where it's like this nostalgia for this ability to build these giant things, which is in the sort of uh, you know World War II Japanese nationalism that kind of bridges over into the idea of these giant robots, these things that you could have built that you didn't get a chance to build because you know America came in and, and blew everything up. Um, your glory is, is you know not never had a chance. Like the Yamo, Yamoto never got a chance to, or Yamamoto never got a chance to sail out of the out of the harbor. Even it was scuttled in the harbor, which um, makes which makes an interesting note in that the two you know primary forces at work here, kaiju and Jaegers, are both named after Axis power languages. Right, mm. right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I guess the other thing about sort of um, so the other angle to approach it from, if we look at, at actual other mecha pieces, I'm thinking particularly of Big O. Have any of you guys ever seen Big O? Um, Big Big O is like it's it's very similar to Batman the Animated Series in a lot of ways, where 
the about half of every episode follows this uh, sort of rich gentleman as he tries to solve mysteries, right? And it's very dark and very angular, similar art style. But then at the end of every episode, he summons a giant robot and like does battle with another giant robot. <laughs> it's sort of the opposite of a Scooby Doo plot, right? Like where rather than the, the monster turning out to be a criminal of some kind, it's like, oh, turned out there was a, another giant robot. Like, yeah. <laughs> that was embezzling those funds. <laughs> better, better commence to punching it in the face now. The, the, the criminal turns out to be a giant monster instead of the monster turning out to be a criminal. Exactly. Yeah. I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you giant robots and your other giant robots. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but the thing about Big O that always struck me is, uh, well, first, how jarring it is when the frickin' giant robot shows up. It feels, like, really silly. And I think part of the extent of this is that, you know, I watched Voltron and a little bit of Gundam when I was very young, uh, but I caught sort of the tail end of when it was really popular, and, uh, and and I just never really connected all that much with it. Like, the trappings of this genre don't hold a ton of nostalgia for me, and so the silliness of it is hard for me to overcome, as opposed to in superhero movies where I'll buy it hook, line, and sinker, like, no problem. But, but the other aspect of Big O, and this is also true of Evangelion, and I think this is probably we can make a lunge to guessing it is true about Mecha in general, is that the Mecha represent kind of psychological barriers and defense mechanisms against things about ourselves that we don't want to know, or, or pain or trauma that we've had in the past. And this is something that, that Pacific Rim also deals with. Uh, it, it's the walls and the barriers that we put up to allow ourselves to sort of be awesome in a world in which we feel very vulnerable. Um, and in Big O, it's that everybody in the, in the city, or anybody who's even known has lost their memory. Right? So everybody has amnesia, and they all wake up in this city and try to sort of go about their jobs and sustain themselves, and they don't really know what happened. And they're this legacy of this past civilization that's them that left them these giant robots that show up every once in a while and the robots are both these kind of memories of their past problems and also the sort of power that they have that they don't know that they have to fight these past problems um, and so there's the sense of the vulnerable person inside of the giant metal robot uh, and also the sort of giant powerful projection of the self that comes out of the thing that's in the person and we see kind of the beginnings of this in Specific Rim. This for me is, even though there's never really any reason to create a giant bipedal robot, uh, and some properties do a better job of kind of forcing the explanation than others, I mean, for example, putting one in space, it's like, okay, fine. It doesn't matter whether it has wheels, it's in space, right? Like that doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just traveling through space. There's no air resistance. Um, but... Uh, but uh, as long as you can get it into orbit. But it's like the real reason to have it is because the image of the person uh, informs the story. And the idea of a person inside of a giant metal person tells a story. And the idea of two people inside of a giant metal person, which is the construct of Pacific Rim, tells an even further story, like if you allow it to tell the story. So like what did you guys think about the, um, the, the pairings? Like the fact that you had two people who had to sync up inside of these robots and, and that this was the power that was able to fight the monsters. My my first thought was that I was waiting for the sort of last Starfighter plot where they come in and find the uh, the captain of like the uh, what would it be I don't know the New Zealand synchronized swimming team and said like <laughs> this is your day. <laughs> oh. but, um, I mean, this is it's a very. This is the part where I was wishing that I had seen more Evangelion than I have. The idea that you need to open yourself up to another person, right? Um, and that the two strategies that they have for fighting the, the monsters is either A, build a giant wall, 
right? Or open yourself to your co-pilot um, is <laughs> quite an interesting one. Uh, although I do think that they very much overplayed the difficulty of syncing up with somebody because by the end of the movie, it's sort of like, ah, I could sync up with anybody, right? <laughs> I, <guess>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought yeah. that was the big story failures of the movie is that like yeah. it ended up not mattering at all. <laughs> yeah. They also overplayed the commitment to the wall in that it's a very big plot point in the first 20 minutes of the movie and then is completely forgotten for the next 100 yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Not even mentioned again. Uh, but, uh, but to that point, uh, I was discussing this with, with my fiancée, Sylvia, because we, we both saw it today. And uh, she mentioned the point about the discovery process for who your ideal co-pilot would be, which involves apparently a sort of kendo fight or something along those lines. That uh, I, I don't even know the guy's Raleigh, Raleigh hero guy. Raleigh Durham? With, I don't even know what his name is. <laughs> Yeah, the Ra- research triangle <laughs> that, that Raleigh that Raleigh Durham has with uh, with, <laughs> with a shy uh, Asian chick, and uh, I, I know she had a uh, Mori or Morita was her name. I I apologize, I forget which. Uh, she barely had a personality. I'm sorry. Uh, so you know the the kendo fight that they have, and and she raised the point that like. Is is this really the most effective means to determine who your partner should be? It's like congratulations, I kicked your ass. Now get in this get in this giant robot. But uh, so we hash we hashed out a little, and I guess it sort of makes sense that you know if if you can have a close fight with somebody, like it's really closely tied, and it's like oh, I'm anticipating your attacks and you're anticipating my defenses, so therefore we're we're simpatico. But uh, you know, there are other things people could do to do that, like, you know, dance or play poker or, you know, play two-person Tetris or something like that. <laughs> totally. And I, th- I totally felt like there must have been an earlier draft in the script where there was a – because the, the real reason why they match up, right? Because they say early on in the movie that the thing that causes you to synchronize with the other person is the shared memories that you have of things, right? Yeah. So, like, the twist felt – I feel like it should have been either that the girl knew his brother from somewhere – Right or that they had some sort of twist that they they had some sort of common past like maybe you know their dad was in you know Japan stationed and had another kid or something. There's some reason why they were connected in their past or the experience. And this is the one that was probably more likely, I would guess, in an earlier conception of the script is the feeling of losing your family to the kaiju is enough of a similarity to losing your brother to the kaiju that they sort of had that in common. They had this sense of loss. And the one thing that sort of defined her character was her, how debilitating her desire for revenge. Was. Was. And and so his character conceivably should have also had a debilitating desire for revenge. Uh, and they, we sort of get close to that idea, the idea that his memory of his brother sets off her traumatic memory of losing her family to the, to the kaiju in Tokyo. But, like, we never quite get there. Like, we never have that scene. And I, I just – I feel like it must have been cut out and replaced with the kendo fight because it made it – because it's like, oh, this scene is boring. There's talking. We have them fight. <laughs> Oh man! I mean, to, to piggyback on this idea of like the shared memory is what makes for a good a good pilot pairing. Um, and this sort of explains why Idris Elba um, is able to come in and, and be the substitute pilot for the what is it the British uh, pair or the Australian Australia. pair? Australia. So, the Australian pair um, because uh, he's stubbing in for the father. Right, right. I think it's it's gestured at, but the idea is not completely uh, flushed out because it happens in like a five second dialogue exchange, and it's like, oh, okay, great, he's ready to pilot. Yeah, I mean, I think what obviously should have happened, given his character, is he should have pulled some sort of ejection seat, forced the other guy out, and gone to do it himself. 
right? Because he's like, I, because he lays that development mm, too. It's yeah. like, I'm the only, I'm, me and you, we're the only two people who can pilot these things by ourselves. I'm going on an obvious suicide mission. I'm just going to bring this, this like 25 year old guy who has no yeah. idea like, the scope yeah. of his life. I'm just going to bring him and I'm going to kill him in front of his father. I'm going to yeah. do that. I've <laughs> never cared him. for him, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I consider this a mitzvah. Exactly. It's like, oh, does the audience like you enough to care if you die? No, they really don't. So there you go. I love it how it... You can tell who's meant to die based on how much characterization they get, you know. And this is the Chinese team. Oh, they have a triple fighting strategy. And this is the Russian team, and they're pretty tough. They're never going to say One of them also looks like Zangief, by the way. Yeah. Yes. They were totally the sidekicks of General Zod from Superman 2. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that was kind of interesting about that is that, um, like, so it's meant to be the Pacific Rim, right? You have these various nations from around it, but then very quickly anyone who doesn't speak English is said goodbye to. Um, that when the various uh, Jaegers are introduced, the Chinese one gets like a very kind of stereotypical Chinese music when it's introduced. And the Russian one gets some like, you know, some straight up Red October kind of uh, uh, choral hymn in the background. And then there's no musical identity whatsoever for the other two beyond the theme song of the movie. So like, although they don't have personalities, they have these sort of like exotic, I mean, Orientalism basically uh, to them, which again is like dehumanizing in a certain way and marks them as not serious characters that we have to worry about. Yeah, I always think of these kinds of movies as super dodgeball movies. Did you guys ever play super dodgeball for the NES? I feel like I brought this up like three years ago on the podcast. Suppose the dodgeball is filled with high explosive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your, all, your ultimate choice is to not play dodgeball. No, or to not play against the team because they were so great. But no, that's the one where it's like it's, it's from the same people who did like River City Ransom. And it's those little marshmallow dudes. And it's like just the different nations are just racial stereotypes of those nations. And it's like, hey, I'm going to fight the Chinese people because – they kind of look Chinese, and it's, it's, that's their character. They play the, like, Chinese music when they come on, and it's all really offensive. But at the time, this was sort of groundbreaking. The game was capable of, of communicating such, like, reductivism. Technology. But, I mean, like, so Pacific Rim is clearly attempting to market the action movie to the Asian audience, right? It's like, oh, a lot of people in China and Australia are going to see this movie, and people in Japan, because it's about Pacific Rim, and that's a big audience for, for movies. And, I mean, you can sort of contrast this um, to the way that Iron Man 3 sought to market itself in China. Iron Man 3 was very successful in China. I, I keep finding myself complain, uh, comparing this movie to Iron Man 3 as I think about it because I loved Iron Man 3 and I was kind of ambivalent about this movie. But Iron Man 3 marketed – How do you, you guys know how Iron Man 3 marketed itself in China, right? Like it had a partnership with a major Chinese company that was like featured in the movie and I think there was a different Chinese cut of the movie that featured more of the product placement of this Chinese company. Right, and so the, the, the and cut also had a bunch of cameos from Chinese celebrities. I think exactly. It had, oh, that's what it was, right? It was cameos from Chinese celebrities. So it like actually showed things that people in China would recognize as really them, right? And it built, made actual business connections in China, right? And so like this is kind of like one of the models for how you get involved, uh, you know, business wise, investment wise in Asia in particular, where the markets aren't really constructed. And, and I'm going a little bit more into my professional life than I generally want to, but like where the markets aren't really in a place where it's easy for you to just sort of buy off the exchange, right? It's like 
stocks in China don't price in such a way that you should just sort of like buy an ETF and call it a day. If you want to put money to work there, you have to know what's going on. You have to know people on the ground. Whereas Pacific Rim is like totally the import-export model where it's like, this is my country. This is your country. This is what I think your country wants, which is things that go like in pentatonic scales and are painted red, right? And have like mm. others. From <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a lot like what we talk about in the Tokyo Drift podcast. And we can – uh, we can we can sort of transition to talking about drifting here if you want, but it's like uh, you know the first Fast and the Furious movie showed a kind of awful reductive uh, stereotype of what Asian American people would be like, and then Tokyo Drift, you know Jeremy Lin comes in, actual Asian guy, he's like uh, no uh, just, Justin Lin. Lin. <laughs> How awesome would it be if the basketball player Jeremy Lin also directed Fast and the Furious movies? But alas, such alas, is not the case. we do not live in such a beautiful world. Perhaps no. if the two of them uh, can establish a neural handshake. We could have a basketball. <laughs> That's something we've always wanted, um, but yeah. But basically, show Chinese, show, show uh, Japanese people the way that they would actually exist, conceivably as if as if they were talking about themselves. Um, I mean, well, I don't know. We've been talking about Orientalism with this movie. Like, it's it's kind of built into its DNA because um, it's such an homage to the Japanese monster movies, right? Godzilla and whatnot. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, it's, they're it's, called kaiju. Right? It's, it's kind of unavoidable. It's, it's almost like the, um, the, the Japanese character, her name was uh, Me- Mako, Mako, whatever. Um, like, she's like very transparent fan service in some ways. It's like, okay, for the American fanboys who want to see um, a movie about giant mechas, like, we're going to have a Japanese chick in it. It's, right. such, it's such an homage. Like, there must have been some point at which someone sat down, you know, Guillermo del Toro and, and the screenwriter and said, hey, you know, since we're doing a Western version, we have the chance to, you know, excise some of the particular, you know, uh, Asian elements of, of mecha anime that might not translate well to the West, you know, like the high melodrama or, you know, the declaring your attack move right before you do it. Or somebody swearing vengeance right before they stab something. Do you wanna? Do you wanna cut any of those out? I'm like, nope, we're good. Elbow rocket punch. <laughs> <laughs> the concession to the American audience is the Charlie Day plot, I think, too, which is very much like a '50s American science fiction movie, right? Where it's like 90% of the movie is the scientists in a lab being like, "These monsters are coming," and this is sort of how they work, and and then it's like one shot of a city getting destroyed, right? And then it's I like a rubber suit, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then you cut back and forth, you have like the blithering. The yeah, yeah. Although, although to, the, to the point about Orientalism, it's, it's interesting that for as much as this movie takes place in Hong Kong, there's very little sense of Hong Kong as a place. Like, you know, Professor Charlie Day is sent at one point to the intersection of two streets, which, you know, Hong Kong is a massively dense metropolis. You're going to need a little more direction than that. Like, is it on the Kowloon side or on the, or on the Big Island side? Is it, you know, which district is it in? But Apparently, Hong Kong is just all of a piece. Like there's 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 very little sense of you know Hong Kong, which is a which I've, I've been to and is a very distinct and unique and you know it's it's a city that kind of has a fingerprint to it, and there's there's no sense of that because it's just it's all Asia Town. Right. I felt yeah. like they treated the Asian cities in sort of a fan service kind of way, where they showed things that you would recognize if you knew that city, but they didn't bother making the cities real inhabited places. Right, like if you live in Hong Kong, maybe you know those little things that are by the port, right? Those little uh, cylindrical things that are by the ocean that the guy like sort of tips over when he bumps into it, right? Well, if you if you live in Hong Kong, you recognize like the skyline because they do show at one point the the Hong Kong skyline, the Bank of China Tower, and and all that. It's like, oh, okay, this is Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I. I don't know how much you would recognize, but I mean, you know, I didn't not- even recognize. I wasn't even sure I was looking at Tokyo and like the young Mori scenes. 
uh, or Mako scenes, whatever Mako Mori. Uh, I mean, that was Tokyo, right? I mean, I'm because I, I don't know there's a skyline of Tokyo, so I don't know what it looks like. Despite seeing Tokyo drift recently, uh, they don't really point it at. The sky. <laughs> I mean, it's all it's all pretty much in like an alleyway, right? I yeah. think we can go ahead and assume it's Tokyo. Like, if you're going to smash some city in Japan, you're like, you know, you're not going to go to Kyoto. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think they showed anything in particular. And and certainly, like, you know, when you see Sydney for a second, it's like, well, there's the Opera House, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it, it reminds me a lot of, you guys see the Tom Jane Punisher movie? Um, that thing with John Travolta. Uh, the very, very first shot of that movie is a shot of a city skyline from the ocean, and in like really dramatic lettering at the bottom, it goes Tampa, Florida. <laughs> and it's like, well, good. Now I know where this is happening. <laughs> you know, like uh, at least they had the courtesy of telling us, uh, but they told it to us like it was something of great weight. Uh, whereas here, it's kind of brushed aside. But yeah, yeah, I think that that sort of getting back to that point that. Um, this is clearly, and I, and I think avowedly, I'm pretty sure Del Toro has gone on record saying, like, yeah, I, I loved watching kaiju movies, and I want to, uh, you know, this is my love letter to that genre. Um, and I think it's effective in, in, in that. Um, he apparently told the monster designers that they had to make the kaiju such that conceivably there could be a dude in a suit within the monster, you know. That uh, that no no uh, no biological forms that wouldn't allow for that would be considered, um, and uh, I, I had a point where I was going with this and I just lost it. Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, well, we were talking a little bit about um, what would you want to take away from the 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 aspects of this genre that might be unfamiliar to large sections of your audience and the answer is we don't want to take that away that's why we're making this movie that's why that's why Benicio del Toro and just and Justin uh, Jeremy Lin are making this movie no why Guillermo del Toro is making this movie yeah. um is <laughs> likes those movies he likes yeah. those unique things he wants to play with them and i feel like some of the things that we've been complaining about just cuz it's sort of our nature to complain are the very things that you you have to put in there for it to really be that kind of movie like yes the, the the way to deal with this problem were it to actually exist would be with like big guns from far away you yeah. know but if they had yeah. if they had felt the need to throw in the way that they did with uh, Transformers like here's how the American fighting man can make a real contribution to this kind of uh, you know this kind of dust up I would have found that like laughable and revolting in a little yeah. way you know yeah. I, I came to see robots fight monsters and anyone else fighting the monsters is really just like not worth my price of admission mm-hmm. yeah and I think um, well then then let's then let's get into the, the metaphorical significances of the robot monster fights since we don't want to talk about the actual logistics of them as they are laughable. Um, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, because there's a bunch of different uh, schema that you could lay onto this movie uh, to try to say, okay, this is what the movie is about, right? Like, I think we got something off of Twitter, right, Mark? Um, I'm checking the, uh, the the neural pathways to the Twitter feeds now. <laughs> the um, one where he talks about yeah, yeah. So asking if it's an allegory for immigration reform and giant monsters, right? Uh, which, like, in a word, no. I mean, just, just to, to, <laughs> well, I mean, one could hang that metaphor on it, right? So to try, please be my guest. <laughs> All right, so let's tease this out, right? Um, you have this threat that's coming from uh, from the Pacific, which we think of as like external to our borders, one strategy would be to build a giant wall. And right. It turns out that like they crash right through the wall. Um, 
So the border fence strategy is not going to work. Instead, we need to sort of to integrate uh, the the foreign presence, at least the you know the highly trained laborers like uh, like Rinko Kikuchi, um, <laughs> who can uh, who can sync right up with our uh, military industrial complex. I don't know though that um, that the threat of the kaiju as a, a metaphor for the threat of illegal immigration really works for me. Um, Right, he's, he's, he can't integrate the kaiju into our white collar jobs, right? Yeah, and and they're not a threat. In the, like, even the people who say that immigration is this giant horrible thing, the way that kaiju come through has nothing to do with the things that they think are a threat, right? Like, they're not stealing American jobs. They're not uh, like being a drain on human services. They're just smashing up the place. Hey, there's a lot of Americans who work very hard to destroy our cities every day. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. If anything, if you believe the strict Keynesian interpretation, they're making jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, like, you know, they just want an honest wage to do it, whereas the kaiju is going to come in and do it for basically free. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I feel like, uh, well, what do, what do you guys see it as, um, if it's, it's not less as an immigration story and more about the rise of Asia and the, and the integration of uh, our interests, our business interests, uh, our economic interests in a sort of post-statist sort of way, right? Because like gypsy – was it gypsy – gypsy danger. danger. Gypsy danger, right? Is like uh, – he's the sort of – I think of him less as – he certainly is less the American hero and more the sort of like wandering American consultant, right? Who's like <laughs> – who's like, oh, like I love Asian people. I'm going to team up with this Asian person who knows – understands me better than anybody from my own country, right? And like it's like I'm going to be – hired by this uh, international organization to give them my talents because the thing that is valuable is my talents, you know, not like, you know, there's never any other issue with his brother, right? He never really cares again what happens to his brother. He's traumatized by the experience and he hates it, but it's like not like something he needs to resolve. It's not something he cares about. Um, right, but, it, right. but it's notable that he has to team up, that like that the um, inside of the of the robot, in order to win, you have to have... A, an American and a Japanese person uh, get to the same drift point where they can fuse their minds with each other and cooperate. East meets West, yeah, that sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's sort of recapitulated throughout the movie, right? The scientists need to learn to work together, right? Yeah. Uh, Ron Perlman and Charlie Day need to be able to like come to some kind of accommodation, even though one of them is on the wrong side of the law, one of them is on the right side of the law. So it is very much a movie about teamwork. Right? And, yeah. I mean, that. That's hokey, I guess, but I feel like it's one of the better teamwork movies we've had in a while. Yeah. I mean, even and Britain needs to acknowledge its role as father of Australia. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. <laughs> but but oh, I mean, it's, it's also... <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. But yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, and it's and it's notable it's not a government thing. It's like, you know, we need to look past the the... The desire of our governments to build walls with each other, and we need to cooperate outside of what they want. We need to establish independent industry that will, uh, you know, in a private interest that will make these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, is, it is a very, it is a very non-hierarchical movie, which I observe because, you know, as as awesome as we all find Idris Elba to be, I think in his role as Marshall Stacker. Pentecost or <laughs> or Stacker Marshall Pentecost. It could be. I, I could have. I think it's way. Stacker Pentecost Marshall. Yes, <laughs> yes. Sir. Uh, named after his favorite weight gain supplement, of course. <laughs> uh, you know the the least effective commanding officer in history because he's got about a 
a 500 batting average on orders issued versus orders successfully obeyed. <laughs> it's like, whatever you do, don't advance on that point. Screw this. <laughs> God damn it. I this is a real army. <laughs> so can we talk about the the nature of this Jaeger organization? Like I lost it in the transition from uh, you know as they lost their government support essentially. Like what happened then? Are these totally private? Are they completely mercenary? Are they well, uh, funded by the Chinese government? Like what's going on? I don't know. You mentioned in passing that you know when the UN was shutting it down, it's like you've got funding for eight more months, and then apparently the eight month timeline doesn't matter because these kaiju are coming out like every four days and like two of them at a time. And then it doesn't matter if they're coming out two at a time because there's now three of them and there's only two uh, Jaegers left. So timelines got weird. Like apparently immediately after the the kaiju were brought back, you know, broken and and bleeding, like less than a couple hours later, there were three kaiju or maybe it was a day later. I'm not really sure which. Or maybe Stacker's nose was just bleeding for 24 hours. It's it's tough to say. (laughs) Aren't there five years, though, between when the brother dies and when the events of the movie take place? Yes. Yeah. Which was another bit of odd continuity because you barely get ten minutes into the film and already there's a plot and three plot twists. Like, (laughs) here here come the kaiju, and then we build these robots to fight the kaiju, but then the Jaeger pilots get too cocky or something, and then this guy dies, and now we're building a wall, and now the actual movie can start. Right, right, right. Hey, congratulations on that guy keeping the same six-pack for five years. I don't think anybody can really do that in practice. Well, but, he doesn't uh, have anything else to do, right? Like, yeah. he's unemployed. That's right. He's just doing – he's eating fish. He's eating canned fish and doing sit-ups yeah. pretty much all day. <laughs> doing something pretty important for the past five years. Yeah, sit-ups. Yeah. <laughs> he could have been like, I'm working on the wall that's trying to stop the kaiju. Like, if you were actually good at making small-time conversation with people, they'd be yeah. like, oh, that's interesting. How did it go? Like, not that well. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, like, so he's like, I'm working on the wall, lifts up his shirt, gestures at his abs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing some construction. <laughs> but let me, let me zoom out of this uh, scintillating conversation to, to think about the... the scintillating? The, yeah. The, um, the, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 Zack Snyder specific rim. <laughs> So let me zoom out to think about the, uh, the the broader themes that I was trying to get at when asking about what, what the nature of this organization is, right? Because um, you know we, we we've talked about this a lot of times in the podcast. In fact, we for the most part had an entire episode devoted to this idea about institutions and governments and their role in solving problems and how they're depicted in this year's blockbusters, right? In a lot of movies, the government more or less is doing the wrong thing, right? They're sort of in, in, incapable of. Um, of institutionally solving our problems, um, and this is one of those movies, right? Where yeah. the UN basically is like, eh, we don't care about the um, about the Jaegers. These walls work just fine. Oh, but one of the Akaiju just completely destroyed the wall. Oh, the wall will work just fine. So, like, screw them. It's up to this elite cadre of ragtag Jaeger operators who are not affiliated with the government. It seems like uh, to save the day. Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like it's a deep state is what we're looking at here, right? It's like it's a military superstructure and command structure and everything like that, um, that when the the government defunds them, they, like, find other sources of funding, primarily organized crime, as it turns out, right? Kick, and Kickstarter. Like the, yeah, <laughs> Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> and they, but anyway, they continue to go about their their plans, sort of without really any regard to what the government has told them to do. Um, I imagine that, like, 
this isn't a part of the the plot that they play up very much, but you look at like I mean, Turkey is the country where the deep state is like is a, a thing that people will know if you talk about the deep state in Turkey. They're like, oh, okay, it's like the sort of the military complex, and whoever is theoretically in power, uh, the deep state will be kind of trying to run things. So it sounds like um, also Egypt, for that matter. Yeah, and Egypt is a place where like they've borrowed that term deep state and like asked whether the deep state in Egypt sort of set Morsi up to fail and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that's kind of what we're seeing here, but it's a very, very pro-deep state movie, right? Is that like the boots on the ground know what need to be done and the bean counters in Washington and Tokyo and, you know, um, gosh, <laughs> Beijing. <laughs> Manila's been destroyed, so. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so the let's Seoul, come, there was a guy from, from South Korea on the, on the, in the screens. So. Uh, Korea represent. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's contrast this with uh, a movie that, that uh, Pacific Rim is clearly making homages to Independence Day, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is like the, the quintessential movie of, of the American government, like, you know, the establishment rallying together and, and kicking ass and saving the day. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, it's like they don't have to get on the wire and tell other people how to bring the other SFBs down because Germany is like, no, we're fine. <laughs> like The UK is like, what? Is there a problem? Uh, no problem. <laughs> like, we're, we're doing okay. Uh, but yeah, but I guess it's it's different because, well, in that case, the president of the United States becomes an actual protagonist and fighter pilot, right? Yeah. Um, and is not hostile to what's going on. Um, I mean that that has the whole mythos or mythology around the American government that it's the Cincinnatus that were sort of farmers that take up the civil service cause and then go back to being farmers after our term is over um, as a sort of George Washington inspired idea of democracy, mm-hmm. um, which is not really present in this sort of you know bureaucratic dystopian future. <laughs> right. So you substitute Bill Pullman's "Today We Celebrate Our Independence Day" speech with Idris Elba's "Today We Are Canceling the Apocalypse." Speech. Which was so disappointing. I don't know. Again, I don't want yeah, to talk too much. That was kind of a, that was a pretty weak speech. Yeah, I was really going to ask. I liked I was it. Ask as our you know as as the as the experts on inspiring speeches. You know how do we how do we rank that one? I mean, I'll say the, mega, the biggest flaw in that speech is not the delivery. I gave you the delivery four stars out of five. I thought the delivery was solid. Um, the content, I'll give like three stars out of five. It's about on par with Aragorn's speech from uh, the, the Return of the King, where he's like sort of talking about stuff that's kind of related to what the movie's about, but not really. Right? He's like, hey, everybody here is working together, and we're all part of a team. And all these characters with no names who haven't been part of the movie at all look up and are like, thanks! You know, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the thing that really like fails for me in that speech is just the context it's just like what is happening when he says it and what's happening is that the kaiju are coming in increasing numbers almost all the jaegers are dead there's two of them done and and he is going to die if he gets in the jaeger and goes to fight these guys and there's no indication that this is going to be the final battle at this point in the movie like they haven't really made it clear Mm -hmm. that this is the one where they're going to go and drop the nuclear weapon into the throat or whatever a really good point like, they don't even make that clear. So it's like, like I mean, I would like a great inspirational speech to skip away from the, insp- the Independence Day one is the inspirational speech that uh, Morgan Freeman gives in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, right? Uh, is a great example because in that speech, the big tension he's trying to overcome is that he's totally different from the Englishmen that he's cheering on to try to go and, and rouse them and try to fight against the sheriff of Nottingham, right? And, and it's like, and he goes, you know, if you would be free men, then you must fight, which picks up all this resonance around, you know, American slavery and freedom and things that people all identify with. And you get the sense that he, he needs to win over these people because otherwise they're not going to follow him. And the speech works and it does. Where it's like, what are these guys? 
going to do other than do what Idris Elba has told them to do, which is to like sit and watch, right? Like, <laughs> like why does he even need to inspire them? Like, he just yeah. he's the one getting in the robot, right? right. Like, like he is he cheering himself up? Is he like I need to get Hulk? Down? This is like a pro wrestling speech where you like get, a big, <laughs> get out there and it's like, look, it's SummerSlam. <laughs> There's going to be a wreck, and all everyone in the crowd is like, boo! Like, you guys don't have to fight in SummerSlam, like. <laughs> Like you guys get to watch. You know, I was thinking actually that uh, along with synchronized swimmers, pro wrestlers would be really, really suitable for this job. You know, because oh, yeah. like like combat ish skills and reading another person's body language, pro wrestlers are probably like your go to skill group on the planet for that yeah, kind like, of are, thing. Are we going for the drop? No, not yet, not yet. And drop. Oh, <laughs> yeah. My oh, favorite my game is just so called Table Flatters and Chairs, and it's written by Bo and Bubba Ray Dudley. Like, yeah. <laughs> 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 like Natural Disaster by Typhoon and Earthquake, or the Legion of Doom Jaeger, piloted by Hawk and Road Warrior Hawk and Road Warrior Animal. Right, right. <laughs> you, you, you didn't care for the movie that much, but you must have loved the pro wrestling-ish moment when the robot picks up the container ship and uses it as like a sort of improvised bludgeon. Oh, totally, totally. I, I <laughs> I thought that the fight scenes in this movie were done really well. I feel a lot of the time that they the they identified things in the fight scenes that were important and they gave them significance, right? Like the sword moment is great. <laughs> the moment where he's just dragging the boat behind him and hits him with the boat, right? Like um I mean that was a char- that was a moment that was earned because it was like, "Hey, when you're doing that robot thing, you do a lot of unpredictable and dangerous things that nobody should really do with this robot." <laughs> <laughs> and like unlike Man of Steel, it's like not entirely out of character for these guys to like have to ignore the fact the city is being destroyed around them, yeah. right? Like, like yeah. they have to focus on fighting the robot. There's no real hope. I mean, for the robot to save Hong Kong, right? Like as Superman, you kind of expect that of him. It's kind of in his job description. But I really, I really wanted to see the scene actually where they're in the cockpit and Charlie Hunnam's like, "I think I'm going to take that boat," and she's like, "Why would you take the boat? That's a crazy thing to do." No one should do that. <laughs> but here's the thing is that like if this movie earned it it's it's like it's plot then she would be like totally on the same page and you, what you would see is you would see them both flash back to moments they both had in their childhood where they were both playing with boats like little <laughs> <laughs> and they would look at each other and they'd be like uh-huh and they would like pick up <laughs> uh, I, I, will add, I will add one thing in terms of the giant robot fight scenes which is that one thing I thought the movie did really well is that Pretty much within the first 30 to 60 seconds of any of the kaiju battles, you were convinced that the robots were perilously close to blowing up. Yeah. <laughs> like, and just, just because the, the collisions were orchestrated so well, like that combination of visuals and sound and people falling down and bits of metal and stuff flying off and explosions, like, you, you were almost instantly convinced, like, oh, wait, this robot's going to blow up in, like, 30 seconds, which, which did make it a little jarring when... You know, uh, uh, stranger danger or whatever. Gypsy, gypsy, gypsy danger. <laughs> Which made it a little jarring when, you know, Gypsy danger takes on two of the biggest kaijus they've ever seen, gets knocked around a lot, but gets back up, kills them, and then apparently, like, six hours later is good to go again. Like, it's, you know, even. Even at NASCAR, they, they give the cars, like, a couple of weeks between races to, you know, give a full going over, swap out all the parts, etc. Uh, but I don't know that these things have the full cool down. 
<laughs> and this is like when you play D&D and you're like, I have to sit here healing my character for six weeks before we go into another dungeon, right? right. It's because like, well, you, you let the cleric die, so now you have to sit there for six weeks. There's something else about the mechanics of the, uh, of, of the Jaegers that we haven't talked about yet, which is... Uh, <laughs> Gypsy is analog. <laughs> like let, let, let's 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 get that out of the way there. Like that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> right, right. Like it, it, it is it is like such a poor form of techno babble, which is like just kind of quickly glossed over. I mean, and, it's and, and, possible and, that all those screens are just neon lights. <laughs> just like they just have. I mean, we don't really know that anything on any of those screens is really meaningful. Like it could just be like a series of neon lights that light up at arbitrary intervals. Yeah, like do you remember those old like LCD like '90s era handheld games that were usually movie yeah. tie-ins, like the Aladdin game where there's just two uh, buttons. Yeah, and your character I had- on the screen literally does one thing, which is like jump and sometimes throw a thing, and it's just, like, these little, like, six animations on a screen. That's that's how Gypsy Danger works. Like, so Gypsy, Gypsy but, is a Game & Watch, is what you're saying. Yes. But even, even, even that, like, runs on, on like, integrated circuits, right? Like, it's still yeah. digital. Like, you want analog, no, 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 you need to look at... It's dial-up. It's all dial-up. So sometimes there's <laughs> static in the in the signal because like it, it didn't adequately communicate through. Like they're actually yelling back through a blower tube that's yeah. connected via an undersea cable all the way back to to the shatter dome. Right. Which, <laughs> right. Who aims to face that? Like what what's the connotation you're going for there? Like what it, what are we sh- are we shattering them from the safety of the dome? So, so like, wait, so if Gypsy is really analog, is it really is there a giant like matrix on the inside that's just a giant wooden maze with like a metal ball that's traveling through it that's like causing all the decisions to be made? I guess that would would that be digital also? Like, what would well, the mechanism I mean, actually be like? Like a bunch of candles that are melting at different intervals? <laughs> it, would, <laughs> like, it would be like can- uh, it would be like a pipe organ, right? It's all done on yeah. pneumatics. There's a fat boy in a choir robe like pumping bellows <laughs> in Gypsy's house. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, or, or the, the other distinction is, you know, like like old old copper telephone wire systems, because you know when sound was when when sound from a telephone call was literally carried over vibrating copper wire instead of being translated to ones and zeros, sent through fiber optic cables, and then translated back to sound, it was literally reproduced. So you know, the farther away the person was, the tinnier the sound. So like Gypsy is just made of like tensely wound copper coils from from the inside and like there should be giant like spranging and clanging noises every time every time yeah. she takes but it also is happy to just be, happens to be powered by a nuclear reactor but it's analog Right, it's right. an analog, an analog nuclear, nuclear reactor. reactor. <laughs> I, that reminds me, the story I once heard about what the Russian aircraft sci- engineer who uh, defected the United States and was talking to the American aircraft engineer and was like, uh, after he looked at the aircraft and uh, they got a chance to look at an American aircraft for the first time, and he's like, well, wait, where do you guys put the vacuum tubes? Right, like, and the guy's like, "What?" And it's like, "Well, you have these electronic circuit boards, but these things will all be fried in a nuclear attack, right?" So, like, why don't you have vacuum tubes in your aircraft like we do? Mm. Um, so, I guess that would be the other thing is that if you had like a steampunk robot with giant vacuum tubes on the back, yeah. um, which would be awesome, you know, like I'm all for that, but was not in evidence in the film that we actually saw. Uh, and it's not like Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman haven't co- collaborated on things that involved steampunk things with giant vacuum tubes. Like, this is, like all the pieces are already in place. <laughs> like, uh, but whatever. It's all fine. It's all dandy. Yeah. So there was a question that I was sort of trying to get at earlier um, and then forgot about, which is if the kaiju don't quite represent 
illegal immigration. Like it's not a not a metaphor for that. What are they a metaphor for? Traditionally, right? Um, Pete, you were saying that the giant robot is about psychological damage of some kind. Traditionally, kaiju are the bomb, right? right. Like that, that's the that's the master narrative of it. I'm sure that there are kaiju movies that are about other stuff, but like every. It's so much a part of what kaiju are that they're an allegory for the bomb that I'm sure that when Guillermo del Toro was like, I'm going to make an homage to kaiju movies, that has to be on his radar. Right. Do they work as, a, as, a, as the bomb here? Quite. So well, there's the brief gesture towards climate change, right? That they are, uh, you know, the, the dinosaurs who, uh, uh, who are back because we polluted the atmosphere back to a sort of a, a Jurassic kind of uh, uh, condition. And yeah. So, like, like our horrible uh, carbon dioxide generating sins have produced this, you know, as opposed to our horrible, uh, uh, you know, radiation generating sins. Right, mm-hmm. and that also lines up with a a kind of like cool, but otherwise very thematically like jarring and bizarre scene where they're like, there's some things you have to run away from. Take a hurricane, right? Take a Sharknado. Uh, <laughs> Take my Sharknado, please. <laughs> yeah. but, but if you're in a Jaeger, you don't have to. Like, you can, mm-hmm. you can punch Sandy right in the face. Um, so maybe it's, it's sort of like nature. Like, uh, nature gone wrong, nature gone angry, uh, that they're meant to represent. Um, in which case, again, sort of the idea that, like, you can't build a fence, but you can, like, make human connections and then set off bombs, and that will solve the problem. Right. I mean, there are some places where it does symbolize the bomb, right? Which is when they go to the bomb shelter, right? Yeah. Or when, like, Tokyo has, like, the ash drifting through the air, right? Mm, yeah. And that's the bomb, too. That's, like, the nuclear fallout or whatever, right? But, but yeah, it's uh, definitely much more of this sort of nature thing, I guess. But, I mean, I don't know. I still feel like this idea that the Pacific was once a dormant place that you could afford to ignore, but now it's, like, causing all these things to collide. I still see it primarily as an economic metaphor. Um, because, I mean, but again, it's like they come up short of completing any of these storylines. They don't seem to pick one. I don't, know. I don't feel like the economic metaphor works because, like, everyone around the rim of the Pacific is all on the same team. You know, like there's never, there's never even a whisker of a suggestion that like the Chinese robot is going to do something different because it's in China's interests. Right, right, right. I mean, I feel like like I, I played. I know John Parrish did this too, but I played a bunch of XCOM recently, right? Like, which is a great, a great video game. Yes, ha- very have, Yeah, which you have a very similar deep state relationship. It even looks similar. You have a giant council that has like that is funding you that you have to keep happy by like strategically choosing which cities to save and which cities to let be destroyed by the aliens uh, so that, like, important council members continue to fund your operation. And that was, like, a story that they could have pursued but just abandoned, right? It's like, this. a lot of this could have been about Idris Elba is trying to negotiate with the, the governments of the world for more time and to, like, make gestures that will win them over or will, like, change their minds towards working together to fight this problem rather than hiding behind their walls, but he doesn't. The movie just sort of drops the ball on that. So I guess it could have been about that, but it wasn't. You're right on that front. Oh, man. Um, do we have any listener questions off of Twitter, Mark? Anybody else ask questions to, of us uh, that we can address? Because we, we can stretch a whole bunch of different kinds of things over the framework of this robot movie. Uh, yeah, let's, let's turn to the questions. We put out the call over Twitter and Facebook uh, for questions on Pacific Rim. So let's see here. We talked about the one about allegory for immigration reform. Okay, here is a, a couple of questions from at Bob Tiki from Twitter. Uh, one, is Daikaiju going to enter the common lexicon now? Which I'm not sure what that's referring to. So let's tackle that first. Daikaiju? 
Anyone? Uh, I mean, die. I think as a prefix, uh, I'm just guessing makes means something that's like bigger, right? Like great um, or something yeah, like great. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big. Um, so it would be like big, big kaiju as opposed to all the small ones. I guess. No, the answer to your question is no. Yeah, it's not going to answer the, <laughs> answer the lexicon. Remember kaiju as characters from this movie. <laughs> I don't know if if they're necessarily going to associate kaiju with you know the other franchises it comes from to the degree that we're doing on this podcast. Like, I don't think people are going to watch Crank 2 High Voltage and be like, this is a kaiju scene! Right? <laughs> so there is a kaiju scene in Crank 2 High Voltage. As Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another, the second question from Bob Tiki. Does the story work because of its tropes or in spite of them? Uh, it doesn't work. But anyway, you guys can have yeah. your own opinions on that matter. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think that, um, and I think that, Pete, even though you didn't like this, you would probably agree with me that to the extent that it works, it works because of them. Yeah? yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I the think tropes are on this movie's side. The, the tropes are literally the only thing holding the movie together. Like, if, if you've, uh, we, talk, we talk about spoiler alert, but if you've seen, uh, if you've seen Rambo 2, uh, Independence Day and those laser cats digital shorts on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> You've seen the movie, just not the just not the giant robot fights. I mean, like literally down to the "you're a hard man to find, not hard enough." You know, like yeah. that, that's, that's it. That's the movie right there. It's yeah. it's it's tropes hung on a clothesline. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, moving on to the question list. Uh, at Michael Fuller asks us uh, comments on how all sets of Jaeger pilots were related except the main pair, or how they're stand-ins for West-East archetypes. I think we talked about the uh, the West-East stand-in. Um, we, we addressed a little bit the related uh, the relation issue, did we not? Yeah. I yeah. Think about at, at the at the risk of sounding at the risk of sounding a little puerile, I really thought they were setting this up, and maybe if if the pace had been a little more leisurely, they might have gone there. Gone there in that, you know, given that we have a male female pair who clearly have some sort of chemistry and who aren't related to each other and who need to form like synchronized memories or like close <laughs> personal memories in order to be effective pilots. God, I however, that, would we do that? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I really figured they would have boned at some point. Like I, I thought, I thought that was that was all but certain. And then like, nope. I don't think they even kiss at the end. Like that's yeah. That's actually that's actually the plot of a forthcoming movie called Bikini Atoll. <laughs> 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 yeah, like they, they could totally have done it like like a montage where they're the two of them are like they practice in the robot and they get like the synchronization rating of like 40 percent and then you cut to them like laughing and eating noodles together and then it goes to like 50 percent and then it cuts to, like, <laughs> she's in the shower in a towel and he walks in with his abs and they're like Ooh. you cut back and it's like 60 percent right <laughs> like and then, and then it's just the robot humping the air, and you're like, a hundred percent, awesome. Like, <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, here's an interesting question from uh, Nathan Sackett on Twitter. Um, let's see here. Uh, any speculations on how this could impact future films of this physical scale? And I think that's a reference to um, depicting, you know, big things on screen like giant robots. I mean, I think the biggest thing is that hopefully we're seeing the, an end to the age of constant confusion, right? Like this idea, the, the big characteristic of the Michael Bay Transformer movies, which of course I stopped watching after a while, to me was always you could never tell what was happening on screen at a given time, right? And and I think that um, the the influence that it comes to mind in watching this movie is more of a Jack Kirby situation, 
right? Where, like, Jack Kirby is, like, the thing punches at the scroll, right? And there's the giant arc of the thing's fist as it flies through the air. And everything's very focused on the thing's fist. Like, you see what's happening. You anticipate what's happening. Uh, and the action is very clearly communicated. And while there were a bunch of shots in this movie and sequences in this movie where things were pretty confusing and chaotic, it was a lot less confusing and chaotic than these kinds of giant robot movies, though they have not been mecha, have been recently. Um, and I would hope that what we're seeing is a, an ability to communicate hugeness, like sort of incomprehensible hugeness, along with the sort of elegance and delicacy of touch to be able to communicate specific actions and gestures. I would describe them even as gestures uh, in, a, in a theatrical sense, right? When the, when the robot extends the sword, that's like a meaningful character gesture for that robot. Uh, and it, you see in its totality. And it's not something that just sort of happens like with a blinking light and a bunch of scattered stuff and Shia LaBeouf screaming and you don't know what's happening. I do think and wish that they had gone further in the direction that you're talking because I thought that the um, the fight scenes outside of the robots, like the, the kendo match and the uh, the one time when uh, Charlie Hunnam like punches the Australian kid in the hallway, were actually like marvelous fight scenes for yeah. uh, for action movies as we've been seeing them, like yeah. wonders of clarity. Um, and then when they got into the robots, it was it was a lot better than a lot of these things are. But there were still a fair number of actions that were like sliced into three different shots rather than showing the beginning, middle, and end of the action. Um, and I would have wanted to see more of that yeah. again because like when you go back and look at the old kaiju movies, you see somebody like very awkwardly kicking another man in a rubber suit into a building, and I feel the sort of like even even the badness of that is the whole attraction of kaiju, and there wasn't really a moment of that in this, yeah. but I don't know. I would also say that like the style of not being able to tell what's happening in a fight scene, to me, was something born of necessity uh, in the movies of guys like Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal, and even the, sort of, <laughs> and the aging Jet Li when he came to the United States, right? Is that all these guys, when they made their movies when they were young... They showed all the moves in the fight scenes. And then the older you get, the closer the camera gets. Until I think that Steven Seagal just made a straight-to-DVD movie or a straight-to-Netflix movie where the camera only shows his eyes. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. You don't want to see what it actually looks like for Steven Seagal to try to punch four guys, you know, when he's, like, not moving that fast anymore. Um, no. it's, it's, like, it's a necessity. You know, a necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing. And it also lets you put guys like... DMX and 50 Cent into action movies mm. who just don't have any fight choreography training, right? Just, um, yeah, and just imagine what the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly would have looked like if they had used the young Clint Eastwood, you know, back when <laughs> <like> he <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but now, you know, the robots, they, can, they don't have to act like Steven Seagal. They can act like young Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly run like Steven Seagal, right? Like that sort of slow, like when Stryker or whatever his name is running, like, cha-chong, cha-chong, cha-chong. <laughs> Hold on, Eskimo, I'm saving you, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah, for, the, for supposedly the, the fastest Jaeger out there, it didn't seem like significantly faster than any of the other Jaegers, and almost all of them are always running in the ocean for their their entire deployment. So there's a lot of a lot of that very sluggish, you know, exertive beach running, like oosh oosh, you know, very yeah. slow loping steps. I just I twisted my ankle last week doing uh, beach running, so I don't recommend any robot run on the <laughs> beach. Well, uh, Pete, then who's who's going to sync with your your giant Jaeger? Oh well, the night is young. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all all of the Jaegers, all of the Jaegers had a lot of informed attributes, right? Like the Russian one is supposed to be so strong. The Chinese triple arm attack is supposed to be a very dangerous formation. Like it's supposed to be so fast, and like you know, 
none of that was uh, true. <laughs> it got so hard and they got so far and in the end it didn't even matter yeah okay one last question from uh from facebook this is uh andrew burton asking could to- could tony stark have made a better mech mm. or would tony stark have made a mech at all i mean this goes back to our whole discussion earlier about like what well, the best way would be to fight uh fight the kaiju I think I think Tony Stark would, and I bet if we look through enough of the the fifty year Iron Man canon has, would have made like a, a fleet, an aerial fleet of uh, Iron Men or Iron Men duplicates. And in fact, uh, I, I own this comic uh, at home, or I used to when I was a child. Uh, in Iron Man three hundred, which came out in the mid nineties, there's this essentially giant robot that emerges from the sea and starts menacing this this one you know company town, and so I so Tony Stark is out of commission like he got brain zapped by something, so Jim Rhodes has to call up like a bunch of Tony Stark's sidekicks from over the years, including uh, Hap Hogan, who's played by uh, what's his face uh, uh, Favreau in the movie, uh, and a handful of other minor characters, and say. Uh, we, listen, I just got a bunch of Tony's old Iron Man armors out of storage. They're at like 60% strength and they weren't really built to, or they weren't really stored with an eye towards using them again. Let's suit up and go punch this monster. And everyone's like, yeah, sure, totally. So that's that's the Tony Stark solution to the giant monster problem. Yeah. There is the Iron Monger, which I believe appears in one of the Iron Man films. Maybe the second one or is the first one? I forget which well, the one. The Iron Monger appears in the first one. That's, in the first one. That's uh, Obadiah Stane's uh, suit. Yeah, yeah. And in the. Uh it, it, I think in some of the comics and whatnot, it's more of a mecha. It's like thirty feet tall and uh, and whatnot. And again, it's similar to other mecha. It can't. I'm reading. It's a page on the Iron Man Armored Adventures wiki, <laughs> um, <laughs> where it talks about how it can't be controlled alone. And one of the ways to disable it is to disable the link between its pilot and a computer system that's sort of external to the robot that it needs to maintain like a Wi-Fi connection with in order to to work. Um, but yeah, so I think I think Iron Man would have designed a better mecha, but you know maybe there'll be a crossover or something like that. <laughs> Although again, I mean, it's certainly when Iron Man's uh, foes try to out Iron Man, Iron Man are always shown that their their mecha are like comically inept, and you don't get any of that here, right? Like the, no. the failures of the mecha are not technical failures; they're failures of imagination um, and tactics, and you know, not not being Anglo enough, basically. <laughs> yeah, that, that really is it. Because like, there's nothing there's nothing the Chinese mech does differently than the American mech. It's like, it's got three yeah. arms oh. and <laughs> on it. That seems pretty effective. Yeah. And, and it takes just as many punches as the American mech does, except it blows up on one of those punches and the right, American right. mech can, can hit things. <laughs> it's like the, they say on Futurama once, the only thing that they did better was suck and die. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we do better? <laughs> um, that's something, or did we just suck and die in this one? I think I think our our nuclear reactors are full of power, and we're ready to rock and roll into uh, the Pacific Rim Two sequel, uh, which we will podcast about with equal fervor and, and glee. But yeah, uh, I think that that's our that's our time, and I think we're going to end it there. Uh, thanks very much to the panel. Uh, anybody have any final final thoughts before we close it out about Pacific Rim? 
Uh, Ron Perlman is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, so, yeah, weigh in on the comments. Talk about Ron Perlman, which we didn't really talk about all that much in the movie. Talk about butterfly knives welded by, like, members of ARP. And talk about uh, and talk about the, the credits, the end of credits scene, which was also very fun. Talk about robots. What do they symbolize? Did you like Pacific Rim more than I did or le- or about as much as we did or more than anybody that you know? And, and what do you think was awesome about it? And what do you think about all the synchronization and the metaphors and the politics and the economics and all of it? Mecca in general, Evangelion. These the the possibilities are out there. They are gigantic, like the robots in our battles. Uh, <laughs> but to do any of these things, you must leave us, and we must leave you. But you can find us, and we can find you if you come to visit us on the web at www.overthinkingitgot.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't deserve. deserve. Today, today, today is a day that we're all together in a place about to do a thing (laughs) with a giant robot against an alien but when if we weren't all here today then we wouldn't be here today together drunk drunk Can we read some uh, rejected Jaeger names from Twitter? Yeah, read rejected Jaeger names. <laughs> Hashtag rejected Jaeger names. <clears throat> Chocolate Rain. <laughs> Kirkland Signature. <laughs> oh, this is a good one. David Powie. <laughs> what were some of the earlier ones that you mentioned earlier before the show? Oh, the Fiona Apple one. <laughs> oh, the... the uh... Uh, oh, oh, Hawaiian Punch. <laughs> <laughs> Hawaiian Punch, Electric Mayhem. <laughs> Whatever Bill Murray said to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation. <laughs> nice. That's, That's the literal name of the <laughs> yeah. Those two characters were so in sync. They would have had a great neural handshake. <laughs>